Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the high seas of global politics, as we do twice a month. Today we're going to talk about new fuel to the immigration fire. Immigration remains one of the most challenging, sad, and increasingly chronic crises facing the United States with repercussions around the world. It seems almost insurmountable. There are few issues where America's divisiveness and polarization is more visible than the immigration crisis. And recently, a new chapter headlined the news all over the world, and I saw it. When I mean all over the world, I saw it with my own eyes recently in Italian and Spanish newspapers. And the new thing is that the governors of Arizona and Texas have decided to throw gasoline on the blaze by literally loading migrants onto the buses and, quote, sending them to Washington, D.C. and New York City with nothing but the clothes on their back. The immigration gridlock is unlikely to resolve in the next two years of the Biden administration as we now then gear up to presidential elections rather than actual governing. So what can we expect? And we have a great guest who's going to tell us what we can expect joining us later to discuss this complex issue. Andrew Seeley is the head of the Migration Policy Institute, and he's going to help us break it down. And that is the good news, Peter, because um, the immigration crisis is, of course, much broader than the southern border of the United States alone. But dealing with that U.S.-Mexico border has been a key challenge for decades. The number of immigrants crossing the border have been spiking since at least 2013, haunting several presidents and triggering all kinds of failed policy. The situation recently got out of hand again in January 2021, when Biden took office with a seemingly friendlier, more humanitarian stance on immigration and tried to seek a better solution after Trump's wall building rhetoric, family separations and deportations. Biden hoped, hoped to build a more effective policy. Unfortunately, though, we all know it has not worked. The issue is as divisive and polarized as ever before. And today, in light of the relevant subject, Peter and Thea, the owners of Immigrant Food, will interview our guest. But first, let's hear from Thea on Thea's Take. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So, guys, I simply don't know where to start when discussing the immigration crisis in the United States As a co-founder of Immigrant Food, which is a restaurant group with a mission to celebrate, advocate, and educate on behalf of immigrants, we publish a monthly publication where we take one issue in immigration and go in depth. We started in 2019, and we've never missed an issue, and we also never lack ideas for new issues. I mean, this is just an, an issue that keeps keeps on giving. Um, America was founded, was established with the help of immigrants, and yet it's never found a way to effectively implement an immigration system. It's an issue that will continue to haunt this country for years to come. Immigration in this country is so complex and so incredibly polarized that it's hard to pinpoint how it all started and why it's such a cause for virulent debates and political infighting. When it comes to immigrants, the best and the worst of humanity comes out, literally, and that's what I want to focus on today. We talk about immigration as if it's this highly polarized, incredibly debated topic, and of course it is. But that's just really limited to the state and national politicians. Extreme right politicians love to use it as a political football to throw at more mainstream politicians who they corner into being these quote unquote 
open border, lawless instigators of replacing America's white Anglo-Saxon essence? And as usual, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Do we need border control? Yes. Do we need a system in which those entering the country wanting to create a life here should have background checks and go through a process? Of course. But also, we should know that most drugs enter the U.S. through legal ports of entry, not the vast open borders, and also white Americans who live in predominantly white and Trump voting counties are 50% more likely to die from murder, gun violence, and drug overdoses than whites who live in the most diverse and Democratic voting counties. So basically, the more white and Republican a county is, the greater the risk for white Americans, and those are facts. There's a loud minority, silent majority problem. Poll after poll shows that Americans continue to support immigration and that they believe that immigrants are a fundamental part of the United States. And also here, the polarization is clear. Our long age groups and education levels, really mostly. Most recent polling shows that 83% of respondents ages 18 to 34 believe immigration is good for the country, compared to only 57% of those ages 55 and up. And education, of course, is a huge factor. College graduates are much more positive about immigration, supporting it at 80%. Then adults with no college education, where only 64% of respondents support immigration. But as you can tell from all of these numbers, really, three out of four Americans believe in immigration. So what's the issue then? Here's my take. Blaming immigration for our problems is the best political tool. Let's blame those that don't look like us for the problems that we have caused in our own country. Wait, have I heard that before? What do you think? Have you heard that before? I bet you have. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Mooney Biden unsuccessfully tried to do away with punitive policies, including the Remain in Mexico and Title 42, which allows border patrols to reject entry to migrants based on public health concern. But as Taya said... The political challenges are everywhere and they're going nowhere. AMLO in Mexico is not a reliable ally and the economic situation is deteriorating, generating more and more incentives to cross the Rio Grande. U.S. sought assistance from some Central American governments like Costa Rica and Panama, but resources are insufficient. And COVID has sparked multiple, multiple economic and political crises all over the region, and therefore the appetite for migration remains strong while governments remain weak. So, Peter, let's add a couple of clowns to the political circus. Governor Abbott of Texas and Ducey of Arizona have decided to ship migrants on buses and send them to Washington and other cities. Many are asylum seekers coming from Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, and other nations. 7,000 have already arrived just in D.C. and several more are being bused to New York City. So Abbott and Ducey are betting that they can erode support for immigration. And both cities, of course, are run by Democrats, both self-declared 
declared sanctuary cities, protecting undocumented immigrants from deportation. However, obviously, Washington or New York don't have the funds, the infrastructure to care for a major influx of immigrants. And the burden of this very provocative, expensive, expensive even for Texas and Arizona, and partisan decision falls on religious and voluntary groups to step in. This busing issue has captured international attention because it shows the blatant disregard for treating migrants with respect and humanity. Texas and Arizona don't want them in their cities and towns, so let's, you know, let D.C. and New York deal with them. While crude and lacking in civility, it's also a visual representation of the out-of-control nature of the crisis at the southern border. So where to start? It's hard to see a solution, and meanwhile, we see tragic stories on crossings every week, but we see tragic stories on the buses that arrive in D.C. and New York City every day. I think the best thing to do is to talk to our guest, Andrew Seeley, one of the foremost experts on this difficult subject of migration. And Tay and I are going to be doing the questions as Mooney is on holiday. Andrew Seeley is the president of the Migration Policy Institute, a leading global nonpartisan institution on immigration that just celebrated 75 years of existence of excellence and existence. MPI is a primary source of original immigration research around the world, seeking to develop new ideas to address complex policy questions, a position he assumed in 2017. He's the author of several books and has published opinion pieces in foreign affairs, foreign policy, the America's Quarterly. He contributes to a regular column to Mexico's largest newspaper, El Universal, and is an adjunct professor on the subject at Georgetown University and has taught at Johns Hopkins, George Washington, and El Colegio de Mexico. Andrew previously spent 17 years at the Woodrow Wilson Center, where he founded the center's Mexico Center, and is an old friend. Thank you for joining us, Andrew Seeley. Peter and Tay, it's great to be with you. Tough subject, but, but a lot to talk about. So let, let's just begin with some context here, because there, there's so many aspects of this U.S. immigration crisis, dreamers, undocumented, asylum, family-based immigration versus needs-based immigration, border security. But now we have something called a border crisis, and this is, seems to have given new urgency to immigration. And you know what it does seem to have served as an impetus both to finding a solution, but also has served as cannon fodder for political parties trying to make a point using anti-immigration rhetoric. So give us an overview of where we are in the immigration crisis and at which point do you believe the border crisis has turned to become this critical issue? Well, you know, let me start with actually legal immigration, believe it or not, which is, you know, I, I think the U.S. is a country that gets lots of people who come through legal channels every year. Um, people get green cards, people who come on work-based visas, student visas. I mean, there are, you know, all sorts of family petitions. You know, we have a very robust immigration system in the United States. And as a country overall, you know, we do a fairly good job of incorporating people who arrive our society changes as new people arrive, you know, and that's the history of the United States, right? I mean, there, there's a long history of people coming and becoming part of this country. And so, you know, that continues to function. There's some problems there too around visa backlogs, but, but generally speaking, a robust legal immigration system, and most people come that way. Um, increasingly, we're seeing lots of people arriving at the border, and it is a, you know, and that is the more complicated issue. And that's what takes up the oxygen in the room, because, you know, for a lot of people, it is, you know, it raises humanitarian questions because we see pictures of, of people who had a really dangerous journey. It raises questions of integrity of the system. You know, who's decided who gets to come in and who doesn't. 
questions of protection, you know, who needs international protection and who doesn't, you know, is there a better way for people to come? Is it too many? Is it not enough? I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of questions here when there isn't a system in place, right? I mean, yeah, people are coming with a system. We know who they are. We know how they've come in. At the border, it all breaks down, right? And, you know, what we do know is most people are coming. Right now, it's a, a hot job market. You know, there's a lot of opportunities for work. Most people don't actually know where they're going to work when they arrive, which is fascinating. So people are coming into a labor market that's pretty active, you know, and they will probably do well eventually in the U.S. and certainly their kids will. But it does raise a lot of questions about the integrity of the system and, you know, who, what do we do at a border to have a more sensible policy where people arrive, you know, there's some system to decide who comes in and who doesn't, right? And that's a that's a legitimate question, right? I mean, and, and one can can think, as I do, that immigration is generally good for the country and it has been one of the pillars that has made the United States a successful country, and at the same time worry that 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 whatever system we had at the border, which has never been been very robust to begin with, has really broken down, and we're not making decisions in any sort of sensible way about who comes across, right? And I th- I think that's a uh, that's where we are today, to be honest. And so the question becomes, how do we begin to 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 fix this? Um, and, and let me just say, I mean, you know, there's a couple of things why people are coming right now. One one is. Central Americans, you know, we knew 10 years ago they were going to start coming in the same way Mexicans did, right? The Central America is close enough. People have now, there are enough Central Americans in the United States that people have social networks. They have a couch they can sleep on when they arrive. They have someone who can open them up for a job. You know, the same thing that happened with Mexico, people were going to be coming from Central America. It's, it's been exacerbated by violence, by climate change, by lots of other things. But there's also a a natural part of this. We knew people were going to come from Central America, right? Then there is the crises going on in the hemisphere. I mean, you have the collapse of Venezuela, the political crisis in Nicaragua, Cuba backsliding economically to where it was in the early 90s, maybe not quite that bad, but but, but close. And at the same time, in the middle of a real crackdown on political dissent, and then Haiti. And, And Haiti really is, you know, is crumbling on, you know, politically, socially, economically, um, in terms of rule of law, I mean, it really is a it, it really is a, a crisis point. So you have those four crises going on in the hemisphere, right? Which are driving people. That's different, right? Those are momentary things, but they're big momentary things. So sort of like Ukraine for Europe, right? I mean, these are big, or Syria for Turkey. These are big crises. And then you have a little bit of of what's going on with the COVID recession that went on around the world, and you have this interesting migration. This is probably temporary, but it's you know, but it matters right now. You have people coming from Colombia and Peru and and Brazil and other countries who are more middle class, but they're from that precarious middle class that lost their jobs during the crisis. Um, people who had formal jobs and, and all of a sudden they, they lose that formal job. They're probably still working in the informal economy somewhere. Um, some are driving Uber or, you know, they find some other way to get by, but they realize that their dream of moving into the middle class has, has fallen apart. And so these are people who never thought they would migrate. And suddenly they they have decided that the only way that they keep moving ahead is to sell what they have. And they usually have some assets. You know, they sell a car, they sell a house, they sell whatever they have and and try and come to the U.S. And you've got those three things converging at the same time. This sort of expected migration from Central America, the crisis migration from these four countries, and then kind of a, an impoverished middle class coming out of this crisis. And and those are converging at the same time. It's an excellent description of what's happening at the border, but can I, can I just, can we just talk? I, I wanted to push back a little bit because, you know, you, you, you make a, a great argument for there's a special crisis happening on the border and there's no doubt that that's the case, but 
I mean, it just seems that the entire immigration system of the states is falling apart along with what's happening at the border. I mean, immigration courts aren't real courts and they can't, I mean, the backlogs are ridiculous. I mean, five years to get into immigration courts and, uh, it just feels that the dreamers we can't we can't recognize people who were brought here as six month old babies, and you know we take them into our military, but we don't we don't give them a passport. It seems that the system is just completely weighed down by failure. And and I, I how do we how do we right to that wrong? Well, I mean, yeah, there's a deeper issue. I mean, my only point is that, you know, most people are coming in legally, actually. But right. But there's a deeper issue, which is that, you know, our immigration laws really are are based on on a change that was made in 1965. 1965 is an eternity away in terms of the American labor market um, and the composition of, of American society. Right. I mean, this is. This is just so far, you know, over a half century ago. Yes, we've done a little, you know, we we put a little patches here and there to to try and 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 change things. But but basically, the structure of the immigration law we have is is a 1965 law, and it has nothing to do with the the labor market of today, the countries that people are coming from today, um, the population we have in this country today, right? And so, what we do really need is a, is to re rethink our, our immigration system in a huge way. I mean, we've got 11 million people who have no documents, but are living in the country permanently. And there's no way they're going back, right? I mean, so at some point, whatever we think about how they got to the US, they're here, right? And so the worst thing for the country is to have people who are unable to fully participate in the labor market on equal terms with other people or invest in in their education in the same way. I mean, that's just a, a drag on the entire economy. We have, you know, areas of the labor market where it's really hard to bring people in. Healthcare, for example. I mean, you know, we have huge needs in healthcare, but narrow passageways. Technology and innovation, right? I mean, we yes, we have an active, um, you know, H one B visa program, which is supposed to bring in professionals in many areas, including innovation technology, but not at all, you know, thought of for the the economy we have today and the needs we have today. We have a huge service sector which needs people, which is where a lot of the demand is right now, and yet a very narrow pathway for seasonal workers to come. Um, and that's where a lot of people, by the way, across the border are coming into. I mean, they're, they're moving into construction or they're moving into, you know, areas of the service economy, hospitality, restaurants, and so on, um, because there's very narrow legal pathways, but there's a lot of jobs there, right? There's actually, you know, people are getting jobs when they get here. So we have an immigration system that is not fit to purpose right now. And so in an ideal world, what we would do is is restart and try and come up with, you know, outside of, of ideology and outside the passions of the issue, what is it we need in terms of our future labor market, you know, to to begin to think of immigration as one element in that, right? How do we bring people who are already here into the labor market in better ways? And that means giving them some sort of legal status. We can debate whether that's citizenship or not, but or pathway to citizenship, but certainly some sort of legal status. And how do we think of pathways for people to come temporary as temporary workers or permanent workers to fit other needs that we have in the economy? But we are, you know, we're not there. And the, the passions that, that are really about the border um, get in the way of this larger conversation that might actually fix a lot of this, including the border. No, I totally agree. And I want to go back to the border because I feel like we can have a whole podcast just on the system, right? Um, so a lot has been said about 
like cooperating with countries of origin, right? And so how much can local governments in Mexico or Central America actually do to limit this mass influx of migrants? And how does this really resolve the underlying truth and, you know, the, the reasons why people are leaving countries, including violence, lack of opportunity, etc.? You know, the, the cooperation on enforcement has done fairly little to stop people from coming. What it does do is make the journey more, more dangerous and more difficult, but, but people tend to be willing to risk it. Um, I talked to a migration director in a country that will remain nameless in Central America over the summer who said to me at one point, oh yeah, we're working closely with the U.S. government and you know we've been deporting people who are coming through. I said, and do what happens to them? He says, oh, they come right back and they usually make it through the second time. I'm like, okay, right? I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the capacity of, you know, the, the, it, it slows people down. It makes the journey more difficult. It means that people pay more to smugglers. You know, that may have some sort of deterrent effect, but it also makes it much more dangerous. Where I think the, the magic of, which is not to say, you know, and there's some cooperation against smuggling, which I think can be helpful if you do it the right way. If you look at predatory smugglers, you know, there is some cooperation enforcement that does make a difference, but it is, you know, it's unlikely to stop people from coming. Where I think the opportunity and cooperation lies is beginning to figure out what are the legal pathways that are needed out there. Um, and also, how do we create conditions in some countries so that people that are already settled there, migrants who've already moved once, um, feel comfortable staying in those countries? And this was at the heart of a, a declaration that was signed by 21 countries, originally 20, but then 21 in the end countries um, in Los Angeles back in June um, at the Summit of the Americas, which is to begin thinking about cooperation and sharing information in visa policies, which I think does sometimes matter to have visa policies that make sense between neighboring countries, or at least at least consulted with neighboring countries, but also begin thinking of, of legal pathways. How do you begin creating the kind of, of legal opportunities for people to move so they don't use irregular routes? One example of this right now is Guatemala and Honduras are working very closely with the U.S. on trying to expand the H-2A and H-2B programs. H-2A is the program for agricultural workers, H-2B for services, which would give people a legal route to go so people know what line they can get into if they want to come legally, which most people don't know right now. And there's a lot that has to happen on the back end in those countries to make this work and make sure recruiting is transparent and fair. So there's that really active cooperation going on. Um, there's a lot of work going on with countries like Colombia and Peru to see how to invest in those countries, and it could be a lot more, so that people who are there, Venezuelans and Haitians and others, especially in Chile and Brazil, Haitians and Venezuelans and Peru and, and Ecuador and Colombia, uh, feel comfortable staying in those countries, because if not, they start to head north and they start to head to the United States. And we've we've seen this particularly with Haitians, a lot of Haitians who felt they faced discrimination and lack of access to the labor market in Chile and Brazil have headed to the United States. We've started to see this with Venezuelans in some of the countries where they've settled as well. And so there's a, a self-interest, there's a mutual self-interest in cooperation in trying to make sure that those countries can be welcoming and can integrate people that have arrived um, because it helps them, but also it, it helps us because it keeps people from, from moving across other countries and trying to go north. And so let's talk about, you know, what is a very hotly debated topic right now, which is, you know, the governors of Texas and Arizona and recently joined by Governor DeSantis in Florida are making it their policy to send thousands of migrants north to D.C., New York. We've also seen Martha's Vineyard now. Um, so explain to us why this is happening. 
is this good politics for these uh, governors? And, you know, we, we talked earlier about the Economist article before the show and how this made the point that while busing is cruel and inhumane, it underlines really and sheds a light on this on this depth of the migrant crisis at the border. Yeah, I, you know, I'm of two minds on this one, too, which is I forget Florida. Florida is not a border state. Florida does get some people, by the way, coming in on boats from both Haiti and Cuba, but it's smaller numbers right now. And that's not what DeSantis is focused on. So let's forget about Florida because Florida is making it up. Um, but but Texas and Arizona are facing a real, a, a, a real humanitarian crisis, both for the migrants themselves um, and also a, a crisis for, for some of the communities in the border, which are usually very, by the way, actually border communities tend to be the most open to migration because they, you know, People have lived, people have migrant experiences in their own family. They've always lived with people coming and going. But the sheer number of people coming at this moment and the sheer number of people that are being allowed into the United States because, you know, which is the Biden administration has, you know, has allowed a lot of people to come in, in part because there's not a, uh, a an asylum system that works at the border to make distinctions, and in part because the border authorities, you know, Customs and Border Protection are just overwhelmed by the number of people coming. And the Trump administration did this in 2019, I shouldn't say, by the way. They let lots of people in, you know, because they were overwhelmed. But there are a lot of people are coming in, and, and it does create a sense of, of loss of control. When you see people sleeping in public parks and gathering around bus stations and airports, you know, I've heard, you know, quite a few friends tell me at this point who are generally sympathetic to immigration wow, this is really different than we've seen in the past, right? And I, I think this is, I think we have to be aware that that is, is not, not everyone in Texas and Arizona agrees with what their governors are doing or thinks it's a really smart solution. But on the other hand, they are trying to call attention to, to a problem that is, it, that border communities are feeling is a real problem right now, right? Which is they're not getting enough help. Now, the way they're doing it is obviously a political stunt rather than, a solution. There, there is a real solution, which is try and help people get, you know, if you're trying to manage the chaos, and we can talk a little bit, there are ways of getting beyond the chaos and actually trying to create a different system at the border, which we should talk about, you know, and I know we'll, we'll get to, but but just in terms of dealing with the chaos right now and the number of people coming across, it will be good to get people to their final destinations, right? The more, and there are some NGOs that work on this already, some nonprofit organizations and some state agencies in different states that do this, help people get on buses to where they're going. That's not exactly what the governors in Arizona and Texas are doing. They're kind of busing them notionally to, you know, you want to go to New York? Sure. Send you to New York. Maybe they're actually not going to New York. They're headed to Boston, but gets them part of the way, right? I mean, you know, where they're not quite sure where New York is. So this is not really trying to solve the problem. It's more of a political stunt. But but the idea of busing is not crazy, right? The idea of actually trying to get people out of immediate border communities to other communities where they where they are planning to go with their families is not crazy. So if it were planned in coordination to try and get people where they're going, you know, the federal government would have an interest in actually engaging and make this happen. Um, so I don't want to endorse what they're doing. I get why they're doing it. I even get why they're doing the political stunt because they are trying to to raise attention to the fact that there's a problem in their states that's not being attended to by the federal government. I do worry about the way they're doing it, which is not really trying to, to create a solution, but is really just trying to to create a problem for someone else to get their attention. You know, there's, there's more mature ways we can handle this, but you know. Right. I mean, that's, I guess that's, that's the key point because in the end they are making this 
that they, they're not sending uh, the migrants just anywhere. They're sending them particularly to uh, places that vote democratic, that are sanctuary yeah. cities, that are et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess the next question to ask is what should these cities who receive these migrants who, you know, every day, you know, a couple of, you know, 100 or so migrants get off buses in Washington, D.C., New York City, and now in Martha's Vineyard. I mean, what 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 should these cities now do, and I guess I should say cities and islands now do, to try to make life for these migrants better, and how how do they get help to to move forward? I mean, uh, before that, I mean, I think there's some, some models here. In the city of El Paso, for example, is looking at trying to help bus people to to their destinations, right? I mean, because they are sympathetic to the immigrants coming, but they also don't want people sleeping in the streets. So they're trying to figure out how they can can direct people to where they're actually going, rather than just to to cities that they're politically opposed to. Um, in San Diego, there's been a lot of work very quietly on this through non governmental organizations to help people, you know, get out of the immediate San Diego area to the places they're going to. It's a little easier in San Diego sometimes because people tend to be going elsewhere in California. Um, it tends to be the route for people headed that direction. So, you know, there's been a very quietly an ability. So busing actually can be a really positive solution to, to the immediate chaos. It doesn't solve the system, which needs different remedies, but, but it does help with the immediate chaos and the sense of, of loss of control in border communities. Um, you know, I, I think for the cities that are, are getting this, you know, I, I'm not sure that the answer is to say that this is a crisis. I think the answer is to figure out how to help people get to their final destinations. Because mostly the final destinations are not Washington, D.C. or New York City, much less Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, so but my guess is most of these people, I mean, most people that cross the border know where they're going. This is not, you know, the, yes, there are people who are crossing, who cross the border and they're just trying to get away and they could go anywhere. But that is really a small minority. The vast majority... Andrew, would you, would you just take a moment and clarify for our listeners, who are the people, who are these migrants? Yes. So we have people coming. So one of the things that's changed is we have a huge number of people coming from not just Mexico and Central America, which, which have always been the major sources of migration. We have a lot of people now coming from Venezuela, from Cuba, uh, from Nicaragua, which are countries in crisis, Haitians who have mostly been living in South America and are now re-migrating north, and, and Venezuelans who've also been living in other countries who are headed north, and then some Colombians and Peruvians and others. I mean, it really is a mix of people from throughout the hemisphere who are coming. Almost all of these people know where they're going. They usually have either family or friends somewhere in the United States, and they are headed to a specific destination where someone has told them they're going to receive them. And in many cases, especially right now where the labor market is doing you know, pretty well in the United States. Inflation is a problem, but the labor market is actually, you know, has a lot of openings. Most of these people probably have a job waiting for them. I mean, they know where they're going. And what's their status, Andrew? What's their what's their visa status? It is, it's confusing. Um, the, some people are getting by without anyone stopping them. Those people are completely undocumented, unauthorized coming to the country. They have no legal status whatsoever. Then there are people who are stopped by Customs and Border Protection, usually by the Border Patrol, and they are given one I – mean, sometimes they're sent back to Mexico through something called Title 42, which is a public health measure. Sometimes they're deported back to their country of origin. But people who are allowed in are getting one of two things. Either they're getting parole, which is a temporary permit to come into the United States, 
or they're being given a notice to appear in an immigration court um, or in an ICE office often. And what they have to do at that point is either apply for asylum or turn themselves in to be deported. If they apply for asylum, they then have temporary legal status again while their case is being heard. And so this is confusing because you know you have some people who are coming in who have absolutely no status, legal status at all. They simply got through the border. You have some people who have been given either a temporary status as parole or they are given a notice where they have to show up at a government office. But if they do show up at the government office, they can apply again to get a temporary permission to stay in their country while their case is heard. So we we treat we talk about this as an unauthorized population, but actually a lot of these people have documents. I mean it's it, it's a it's a very confusing this is a, this is another part of the complexity here is, you know, that we can argue about whether they should be in the country or not, right? And whether they should have been let in and that that's a, that's one debate, but actually a lot of these people have a piece of paper that says at least for a period of time they're allowed to stay in the country, you know, and and apply for or wait for their case to be heard. Um, sometimes they're given parole until they apply for it. Sometimes they don't have anything, but once they apply, they they do. It's a mix of statuses. And we don't even know what the numbers are on this, to be honest with you. And so, Andrew, unfortunately, we could go on for hours and talk about this, but uh, we're running out of time. So our last question um, is really the elephant in the room, which is you know talking about political stunts ahead of the midterms, right? Why else are, are these governors doing it? Um, the midterms in November, and then the presidential elections in 2024. So what type of rhetoric can we expect from both sides in these two major electoral cycles? I think we can expect it to get worse. I think people have discovered that immigration inflames passions. Um, it inflames people's fears about about work. It inflames people's fears about, um, about demographic change um, and about lack of legality. Um, on one side, and on the other side, it brings out humanitarian concerns and feelings of solidarity. And, you know, so I think you're going to see both sides, especially Republicans, um, where because polls tell us that Republicans are very concerned about immigration. Democrats are more sympathetic to immigrants coming in, but it's not as as high on their radar screen as an issue. So we'll see Republicans playing on this issue more than Democrats. I would like to think that you will see some people in the middle at least coming together after the election and talking about three or four things. And that would be, how do we fix our asylum system? It makes no sense to send every asylum seeker uh, to the immigration courts, which, as Peter points out, have a five to seven year wait. We should be you know, taking their cases with asylum officers, making decisions you know, in a few months um, and letting people stay who have needs for protection, sending people back who don't. I mean, that's that's one thing. Number two is how do we expand legal pathways? All we have right now are the H-2 visas, which are these seasonal visas, but let's use them for what we can to try and give people a legal option to come. And let maybe talk about other other ways of doing this that would give people a legal opportunity. Not everyone wants to come, but a reasonable number of people tell them what line they can get into if they want to come legally. Three is, I think, how you do enforcement better in more humane ways, but also more effectively. Um, four is how do we actually support countries that are hosting migrants so they don't re-migrate and come north? And five, you know, the, the easiest population of all the pop- 11 million people that are here without documents, the easiest, you know, population to talk about are the ones that have DACA, the young people who came as, as children. There is broad agreement on both sides of the aisle that those are people who need legal security. There is a real deal to be made there also 
around people with DACA, maybe those with temporary protection that would at least give some people a pathway to the future. And, and I'd love it if people started talking about, you know, what do we do with people who've been here 15 or 20 years? You know, we do, we do have the option of, you know, in legislation changing something called the registry date, which is the date that you have to, that if, if you were here by that date, you can apply to legalize your circumstance. A lot of countries do this, by the way, France and Spain among them. You know, if you've been here for a number of years, you we know we're not sending people back at that point. You know, they're integrated in the country. How do we let those people at least come out of the shadow? There's some, there's some low-hanging fruit. Or people married to U.S. citizens and, and U.S. green card holders. You know, that's another one we could talk about. There's, there's some real low-hanging fruit if we were willing to engage. And if both sides could lower the volume, um, I hope after the election we could get to those conversations. Well, lots of ideas for future podcasts. Uh, Andrew Seeley, thank you so much for joining us on All Tomorrow. Yeah, Peter, great to be with you. Thanks so much. If if this is, um, you know, impolite to say, I, you know, I'm always so swayed by Andrew's reasonableness and his rational, calm explanation of what of what could be and 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 the low low hanging fruit. But yeah, I, I've lost such confidence in the leaders of this country and their ability to get beyond that, and particularly the leaders of the Republican Party that you know never lose an opportunity to lose an opportunity. I trying to fix something. And so I, I just fear that even after this election, the hope of doing something is, is it's not something I really think is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think immigration is the issue that will define America's self-identity and it's not just about the leaders. It's also about the people that vote for those leaders. Um, and I just think there's so much misinformation out there on immigration and, I am one of those that I believe that if people just knew the facts and the realities, that a lot of them could, could their minds could be changed. Um, and so I think that we just have to continue trying to do that here at Altamar and also at Immigrant Food. So you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter where you can do that and educate yourself. And we send you analysis on global trends on there. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us.